This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs. Listen live or support by visiting WCWP.org. Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. This is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Very special guest today, Mr. Jeremy Dennis. Jeremy is a member of Shinnecock Indian Nation, photographer and artist, a person who memorializes those things that are true. Welcome to Seldom Said, Jeremy. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm wondering if we can start with a little bit of personal information. Can you give us a bit of background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you this time and place? Oh, sure. Um, I grew up on the Shinnecock Indian Reservation in Southampton, New York, and I went to school for art. Uh, first went to Stony Brook University in 2013, where I received a Bachelor of Art, and then I went on to Penn State University in 2016 to receive a Master of Fine Arts. And so I'm still based and I still work uh, on the Shinnecock Reservation uh, where I'm speaking to you today. And um, in school, I learned all about um, studio art. Finally got to uh, photography and that's what I'm still doing today. Do you feel that you can capture the essence of who your people really are through a camera lens? That seems like a very difficult art form to master. Uh, yeah, definitely photography is difficult to master. Um, I think the amazing thing about photography is the fact that, um, for one, it it's documenting real life. Um, we all know that photographs can be manipulated, but that inherent sense of proof or um, evidence is so important for my work. Um, I like to just show what's there. Um, so often people don't realize that we're here as a community. So I love to use photography uh, more as a sense that we are here. Here's proof of our existence. Um, it's hard to argue against that. But um, even though I'm still personally trying to master photography, uh, technically, I think that you can kind of overlook. Uh, sometimes there's blurs, sometimes uh, lower resolution, sometimes there's um, composition uh, mistakes. But I just love the idea of uh, photography as that sense of proof. I have procured going forward with interviews involving people who are distinctly not of the mainstream American society, African-American, Hispanic, indigenous folk, Holocaust survivors. Was there a point in your life where there was the essence of what you were as a realization, where in a sense you said, I am this, and somebody is going to say that this is different? And I recognize that. I I think for me, um, I've always approached everything in life from a practical sense. And so when I first went to school at Stony Brook, I actually went for computer science. And in um, high school, I was really into coding. I was into gadgets and I still am really. But um, when I finally got to college, it wasn't really for me. It was a total different shift in direction from what I imagined. And so I, I took that whole idea of uh, practicality, uh, logic, and coding, um, kind of the rigidity of um, logic, and tried to in- 
in, uh, interpret that into visual arts. And so um, I think what we have in mind uh, generally when we think of visual art, we think of it as a um, maybe a privilege or a leisurely topic or something that um, usually is pretty low on the priority of um, what we should be working on or um, maybe even employment opportunities. But for me, coming from such a small community, the uh, Shinnecake Indian Nation, which only has about uh, 600 people who live on the physical reservation, it was a, a really practical uh, choice for me to get into uh, visual arts because um, we so sorely need um, to be represented. We need our image to be accurately portrayed and we need um, people to be on our side um, when we're trying to fulfill uh, some of the things that we're trying to achieve as a community. And so in order to do that, people need to know that you are there and <laughs> you need that help. Dealing with artistic efforts and venues that are visualistic, I am wondering whether in point of fact, as well as photography, you have ever considered painting. Uh, well, that's interesting because my mom went to school actually uh, for uh, acrylic painting. And so when I was as young as um, middle school age, I was doing a lot of uh, drawing, um, a little bit of painting and watercolor. And in undergrad, I actually had to take studio art, um, sculpture, painting, printmaking, and then eventually darkroom. So I did dabble a lot in different mediums, but um, I remember in class, I was doing these little doodles either on the margins or on um, nicer pieces of paper of my fellow classmates. And I really loved that whole uh, playfulness, um, how you can just create something out of nothing uh, through sketching or painting. But for me, once I finally got into the dark room and got a camera of my own, it kind of skipped that whole um, sort of process of uh, me trying to be as realistic as possible with a pen or a paintbrush. And I got right to the um, essence, the uh, snapshot in photography. Do you feel that in point of fact, the photographer is a technical painter? I certainly do look at painting more than I look at other photographers for inspiration, just because with painting, you're just limited to what your imagination um, allows you to think of. Whereas with photography, you kind of have to deal with um, where did you grow up or what do you have access to or what are you allowed to look at or photograph? And so uh, in my work, I do combine different elements uh, in post-production. And so if there's something I don't like, I can remove it. If there's something I need, I can add it. And so um, that is a very painterly way of working. Um, it does change when I do documentary style work or portraiture. That's more for um, storytelling or just sharing um, new stories. So it is a mix and a balance. There is a story told that Martin Luther King and Malcolm X both had an epiphanal moment when they were confronted by their guidance counselor, who thereupon told them what they could and could not do with their lives. Is there such an epiphanal moment in your own life where it's not only that you recognized who you were, but you recognized how you would react to the way people treated you? <coughs> um, that's interesting because uh, I can remember even today the whole idea of like, the next steps in life. Like you're supposed to go from middle school to intermediate to high school to college to grad school and maybe a PhD. 
um, I never really had that sense of what was the next step growing up. I had um, just the immediate moment. I didn't really know uh, the future ahead of me. And so um, that moment of time when I knew what I was doing, I think it was each one of those steps where I did have a mentor who was there for me to um, maybe not as a guidance counselor, but more as someone who was uh, there persistently uh, at each stage of my education, just kind of encouraging encouraging me along the way. Um, I don't think they as well had an idea of where I was going, but I think that was so important in my development. And um, I think because it was the visual art teachers in my different uh, grades and the in different institutions, they were the ones that really kept me going and uh, got me to where I am today. Do you teach on the reservation, Jeremy? Do you share your expertise? I do. Um, occasionally, I do uh, youth um, programs. I present my visual art portfolio. I try to get um, the youth involved. But uh, after COVID-19, I'm hoping it ends as soon as possible. We're trying to do a uh, intro to photography this upcoming summer, 2021, which will actually be a hands-on activity. Um, students will be able to get their hands on the camera. But uh, as part of my grad program in the past, uh, I did have to teach undergraduate classes. So I, I have a little bit of experience uh, for sure. Is there a difficulty in sharing the intimacies of indigenous family life? in a camera. Uh, I, I love the idea of uh, sharing um, from within the community um, some of our um, celebratory daily life. Um, sometimes I do find myself um, not sharing everything that needs to be shared because with Native American uh, imagery or representation, I think people come to it with an understanding that they either got through popular culture or movies or um, something that they developed on their own. And so you do really have to just include everything. You have to contextualize everything and explain it to its fullest extent, just because people will make their own assumptions and try to piece together things um, just without context in some ways or without proper education. I know you've done uh, exemplary work showing life on the res, especially the Shinnecock Reservation, there has to be a documentary in there somewhere, a true documentary to be entered in contests and shown widely on venues like Netflix and so forth. Do you agree? Uh, one of the um, documentaries I, I wasn't involved, but Conscience Point is a really popular one about Shinnecock alone. And it talks about our uh, present times. I, I think it would be great to work on a an additional documentary because we have so many different um, issues that we're dealing with, so many things that we can celebrate uh, culturally um, from our heritage. But I, I primarily work with still photography and I'm, I'm slowly learning about the uh, elements of video. So that's something down the line, I believe. <laughs> you mentioned a title that uh, escapes my realization, Conscious Point. Is that uh, readily available to my listening audience? Uh, if I... I believe it's available on uh, PBS. If you have that streaming service, um, either on the web, you can look that up. And sometimes they even have free screenings uh, as uh, seasonal events. 
Do you feel it's imperative that indigenous people do their own photography, their own artwork, their own documentary filmmaking, that it's time to move away from, frankly, the John Waynes of the world uh, who made the Western movies in the 1940s and 50s and to move toward more realistic portrayals? Oh, certainly. Uh, I, I was looking at the uh, study done by Penn State back in 2015, and it revealed that um, most of the imagery that we consume about Native Americans is the pre-1900 context, showing those um, probably Edward Curtis uh, sepia tone images of Native Americans in the West. Uh, one of the famous examples is um, an indigenous person in their tent. They're just sitting among uh, traditional objects. And one of the controversial topics was um, taking out a, a a mechanical clock because that didn't fit the uh, tropes of the time. And so I think that if that was a native photographer who was there and took that photo, they, they really wouldn't have cared because they knew that they were um, an advanced people. They were contemporary people. We weren't just stuck in the past as a static culture. And so it is so imperative that native people take up photography and are the ones who are uh, framing our own lives because otherwise you're just going to have people that come in and say, well, I, I can't include you in this news story because you're not wearing leather and regalia. Um, I can't take a photo of you because you don't have long um, black hair and you don't fit the stereotypes. So it is important for us to be truly uh, represented. I'm reminded of a song that Johnny Cash wrote, The Ballad of Ira Hayes, where he describes how tourists visit the reservation where Hayes was born. And instead of asking about him, they ask when the Indians dance. And that seems to be part and parcel of what the majority of the difficulty is. Those persons who made films, Wayne Cooper and the others in the 40s and 50s, they were honorable men they were just in their causes. Do you feel, however, it is impossible to discern what it is to be indigenous without being naturally indigenous? Yeah, I think that's a, a complicated question because I think that when people come to um, reservations and they expect a certain um, thing uh, when they arrive, uh, I think people are excited and they're enthusiastic to learn more about Native culture, but um, I think they just need to have uh, maybe tempered expectations or maybe do advanced research or call ahead. And um, that certainly still happens today in 2021 on Shinnecock. People still wonder if we have electricity or if we still live in teepees, uh, which we never did. And um, I think it is a lot of just uh, coming to terms with things that we were never taught. And so in my work as a photographer, I like to re redirect or uh, steer that enthusiasm towards education um, because I, I don't think it does come from a um, place of racism or um, place of prejudice. I think it's just a lack of public education and um, re-looking at um, school curriculum to include um, topics that educate the public. I remember some time ago inviting a member of the Shinnecock Reservation, Ms. Harriet Gums, to speak to a group of students. And she presented 
herself as, of course, indicative of her culture, but also outlined the premise that racism as we know of it has been delineated so much on the res that it simply doesn't exist. There has been so much misogynate intermarriage amongst the groupings that racism by basis of color is no longer a cultural imperative. Do you feel that's the case? Um, I think uh, racism is still there definitely because um, now that we're in the internet age and the age of information, you can um, either go on YouTube or go on newspaper articles that are uh, digitized and scroll down to the comment section. And I think the uh, anonymous element of the internet really allow allows people to share what they truly think. And so it isn't quite as bad as um, decades before where people would just write opinion pieces about how we're not native anymore or how we, how we all died. Um, as you can see in um, newspaper articles from the early 20th century, I think it's just sort of that um, kind of hinted or suggested racism. And because we are um, mixed race, I think a lot of people do have um, different expectations of what we should look like. And that does lead to prejudice as well. Um, I think people have assumptions of what we have access to or somehow we have um, kind of like casino benefits or um, checks from the government or live totally tax-free. But um, those are among things that are just among misunderstandings about who we are. Jeremy, we're about to uh, enter into our first station break. This is a fascinating discussion. And I hope to uh, see you face to face and continue it after the break, but also in the summer when COVID is over, simply sitting across the table and comparing notes. We'll be back in a moment. The program is seldom said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Special guest, Mr. Jeremy Dennis, a marvelous photographer. I've seen much of his work, and I hope to share some of it with those listeners in the program. Jeremy, we've mentioned the word indigenous. In point of fact, can you give me a definition in your own words as to the essence of what indigenous means to you? Uh, sure. Um, when I think of the word indigenous, I think of um, of uh, origin of people linked to a certain place. So in my example, I would be indigenous to Shinnecock and um, our traditional ancestral territory uh, surpasses uh, 3,200 uh, square acres here on the, uh, on the South Fork of Long Island. And so I, I think of it in terms of... Um, the context of colonization. Um, we were the first inhabitants. Um, we were there before our colonists first arrived and um, displaced us. And so when I think of being indigenous and trying to define it, I have to sort of contextualize it in that way of being the first uh, to be there. The American Academy of Dramatic Arts has a questionnaire they ask of every student. The last question is interesting. They asked the student, prospective student, you're at heaven's gates and St. Peter is about to welcome you. How would you like God to welcome you to heaven? How would you like 
the res to welcome myself or any guest to its properties, what should we be looking for that we should be able to take with us as a learning experience? Um, well, dating back to uh, 1640, we were actually um, very welcoming of the first uh, English colonists here on Eastern Long Island. Um, pretty much just sent, uh, immediately we offered them a place to stay. Uh, I believe it was uh, seven square acres of land in that first agreement. And um, we kind of lived peacefully for a time. And so in 2021, we're a much smaller land base. It's about 800 square acres. And I think most often when people know about Shinnecock, they know about our uh, Labor Day weekend powwow, which has its origin um, sort of back to 1912 and then more concretely in the 1940s as a annual celebration of our culture and our heritage. And that's the one time uh, for four days during the year that we actually invite the public to enjoy the land of uh, the Shinnecock Indian Nation and the reservation. And so when we bring people to our territory, uh, we ask people to just res be respectful, um, be appropriate, um, both to us as people and to the landscape. And I think that um, just through my experience growing up on the reservation, there is a appeal for non-Native people to come because if you're familiar with the Hamptons, everything's so overdeveloped, everything's private land. Um, you don't really see a lot of wildlife. And so there is the, sort of a great escape coming to the reservation for that first time or coming back again for the powwow and seeing just a different way of um, living in the landscape. The powwows are something that are incredibly interesting. I've had the good grace to experience a number of them, Crow Fair and the Shinnecock powwow. Can you describe or discuss what is shown? I know the dancing is exemplary, but what is done on that weekend that's not done any other time for tourists? Oh, sure. Um, the Shinnecock Reservation is mostly residential with a couple of uh, shops, and we have a museum on the edge of the uh, bounds of the reservation as well. But for those four days in the year, the public can actually come to the very heart of the reservation. Uh, that's where the powwow grounds are situated. And um, you come into the gates immediately. You can observe um, hundreds of people uh, wandering around. There's a lot of um, native people. I would say at any given time, it's probably uh, a third of the people there attending are probably Native American in ancestry. They're uh, either dancers, they're there with family visiting, they're at the vending stands and other administrative roles. And I've been lucky to go there every single year of my life. Um, as a child or as a baby, my parents would bring me. Um, today I go there as a vendor and sometimes there as a photographer. But when I'm just there to enjoy it, um, just like many non-Native people uh, come and do, I wander around, um, I enjoy indigenous uh, food, I buy uh, crafts from um, native people, whether that's beadwork, some people sell their uh, metal jewelry, some people sell their uh, contemporary art and um, new interpretive ways of making jewelry and wearable uh, clothing. And so I, I just really love how many different facets of, um, there's basically something for everyone. 
Um, some people even just come through the front doors. Um, they buy a ticket, they set up their beach chair, and they just sit there <laughs> watching the programs <laughs> on stage. Um, that's really the main event. And so it's a mix of competitive dancing. There's um, something called intertribal dance, which just allows everyone to be on stage at the same time. Um, even if you don't have regalia or even if you're non-native, you can enjoy that segment. Um, there's not a lot of competition happening at that time. Um, there's a grand entry where every single dancer comes and they're separated by category and age. And then there's educational segments along with um, programs by visiting uh, native artists and presenters. I've inculcated the feeling over the years from coming out to the res that fry bread is my weakness. I will end up going from one venue to the other and come back 30 pounds heavier, but so much more contented. I'm wondering much of what is indigenous philosophy is spirituality. And I have noted a certain privacy and reticence amongst Native Americans as to not wanting to share what is the essence of what might be a religious faith. I find it fascinating and that there is such great depth in it. Is one open to conjectures by a visitor during powwow? Um, everything at powwow for the most part, um, I believe if it's a um, honoring ceremony, they ask for photographers and videographers not to document it, um, just to observe those who passed that previous year. Or if it's for a veteran who um, lost their lives, they have special dances and special uh, drumming moments. And so those are uh, sacred to the Native people who are attending. And as a photographer, I, I respect those rules. And there's so much to photograph. Um, I think it's pretty easy to acknowledge that and um, also pay attention if you're non-native just to um, withhold taking photographs. Um, that also expands to um, when it's not powwow time. There's uh, ceremonies just for tribal members. Uh, tribal members usually don't take photos and don't upload images to social media of what they're going through. And so there are different elements that um, are unique to indigenous uh, ceremony. Um, I think it does have to do with um, just keeping along with um, making sure that it doesn't get too commercialized or um, that you're selling um, some sort of service to non-native people as some sort of advertisement or um, kind of undermining the uh, sacredness of what you're going through. I do remember Harriet telling me while she spoke to my class, my goodness, Robert, I must apologize. I did not bring my drum. What is the significance of the drum on any reservation? Um, for us, it's really unique because if you've been to the Shinnecock Powwow, you know our dance arena is a huge drum with uh, red and white paint all around the perimeter, and it's about six feet tall. And that's done practically because um, if you have it at um, normal height, people really can't see each over and it allows more people to see it. But um, there's also two sides with huge speakers and whoever's doing the drumming at any given time, it really does feel like your heart is beating uh, with the beat of the drum. And that's really uh, central to 
um, indigenous uh, communication and expression, that whole idea that the drum beat is the heartbeat and it's sort of the uh, earth's heartbeat, mother earth's heartbeat. And so there is a lot of connection and there's a lot of um, ways that the drum uh, relates to storytelling, to dance. Uh, dance is another form of storytelling. And you can even just have uh, drumming as part of um, acknowledging ceremony as well. Do you dance yourself, Jeremy? Uh, when I was younger, um, my mom has always had a regalia and I, I danced when I was younger, but now I'm on the sidelines uh, <laughs> doing documentary photos. <laughs> <laughs> When river dance was very popular on Broadway, one of the choreographers said, you really can't learn this because it's too late. There is something about the essence of slip jig and Irish dancing that is part of the culture. Is it difficult learning to dance as indigenous populations do? It seems like a lifetime experience. Uh, well, my um, godfather, Keith Phillips, he's a competitive uh, traditional Eastern war dancer. And he goes to all the different powwows each year to compete. And I, I believe that's a big part of his income. And um, I was curious one summer, I was um, asking him, how do I dance or can I learn to dance from you? And he said, well, we all just learn through watching. Um, you can just enter into a dance arena. You can have your regalia and you can basically just watch other dancers until you get the hang of it and develop your own style. And so that's one way that people learn. Um, another way is more modern. Um, Native people are beginning to do their own fitness classes uh, using traditional dance as a way of getting people involved and in learning the dances. And so it is kind of in that new style of uh, studio aerobics and learning the traditional dances that way. Would it be a fair question to ask if you could describe the essence of what is meant by one's spirit animal? Uh, the spirit animal, I think, is more of a um, popular culture reference. I think it um, might not originate <laughs> from Native American uh, heritage. But. Interesting. Okay, we'll take that a step further then. I know that most of what we think of as popular culture is a result of what we've been taught do you find that there is enough being taught reservation oh, uh, young people in the local public schools? In um, public schools, it's changed a lot, probably in the last year or two. Um, I think more and more people are starting to realize that um, just people of color in general are just not really being um, represented in the curriculum. And so um, Native people especially are, have been on the margins for um, decades and centuries in terms of American understanding. And so I would say today in 2021, people are learning so little about Native American history as if it's um, just an elective or something that shouldn't really be part of the American story. And so I believe that um, Native history is American history and we shouldn't start from 1776 um, even though America's history before that period is um, is really um, focused on slavery, development, colonization, and genocide, I think until we actually talk about those things and educate citizens, we're just going to be living um, with this need for reconciliation. And I think the world does look at us um, on those terms of 
um, we're, we're trying to be the best country in the world, but what were we built on and what are we not talking about? Nigerian friend uh, once told me that the most difficult thing he has coming to this country was that Americans asked him about race and he really thought of himself not as a man of color, but as a member of a tribe. How indigenous or natural can one be coming from the res and going to a local public school? There are certain criteria with dress codes and proms and so forth. Has there been any difficulty in the public schools? Uh, I think when I was growing up, and I might even speak to generations before, um, I think it was something that you yourself knew you were Native American or you were indigenous and you didn't really have to come outright and um, kind of express that or share that uh, when you were growing up. I think it was still something that we were still learning how to be or we were still forming our identity. But I think that's just true of uh, any individual, if you're Native or not. That's uh, such a transformative time in your life that you're still figuring out who you are. And so for Native people, it's uh, compo compounded by that knowledge that um, we do have things that we're still learning, even as adults, that um, kind of span that whole development cycle. And so I think in uh, the 21st century, younger and younger people are starting to have better access to resources and um, research of who we once were and still are. And so they're able to celebrate that at, at an even younger age. And um, in 2015, we um, developed and opened our preschool. And uh, the curriculum is based on Shinnecock history, the language. A lot of the furniture is uh, labeled in our traditional language. And so I think uh, it's even better for their generation that they'll be able to grow up and um, go on knowing and celebrating at their Shinnecock. The languages of many indigenous tribes are marvelous. They're beautiful, so soft and lyrical. Have you mastered a measure of the language yourself, Jeremy? Um, not myself. I would say that um, those who were fluent or it was their primary language growing up, they may have passed in the 19th century. Um, but one thing that's kind of ironic is the uh, Bible, which was meant to assimilate us, was translated into our traditional uh, language and dialect. And so uh, today we're using that very same Bible to redevelop our language revitalization. And um, it's now being used as a model to um, sort of become our uh, educational uh, tool to relearn our language and make it our primary language again. I was just about to ask you that whether the ultimate goal is making English the learned secondary language. You feel firmly that will be the case. That's the dream. Well, there are benefits to being fluent in your indigenous language. Um, I think that's a point of uh, nuance, whether or not we should be raised learning Algonquin first or English first. Um, I think there is that whole idea of globalism and um, being able to utilize your primary language better. But um, I think academics have learned that languages are so important because you can um, think differently, you can express thoughts differently depending on which language is your primary language. And so I would I would say that um, certain ways that we have developed as a people has been transformed by our assimilation into English and 
my personal goal is to have people that are equally fluent in both. That'd be amazing. We're about to enter our second break. This is usually indicative of an interesting interview that goes by so quickly. We'll be back in a moment. My name is Robert, and the program is Seldom Said. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. We're into our last segment. Our special guest, Mr. Jeremy Dennis, who is an artist par excellence, a person who is recording the essence of what is Indigenous life on Long Island. Jeremy, I have to ask you, in regard to language, I have a love affair with language. In regard to dance, uh, I love ballet. I love anything that is expressive physically. Is there an open market, an open lesson, a teaching venue for the person who wants to come out to the res and learn, not just watch, but come away with a bit of it? Um, it's uh, great because um, I believe it was back in 2018 that Stony Brook University um, partnered with the Mohican tribe, um, specifically Stephanie Fielding. Um, she, along with the Unkachag and Shinnecock, um, have started a uh, program at Stony Brook University. It's an uh, entire semester. I believe they meet two times a week, and it only requires uh, $50. Uh, that, that's how much it cost when I was uh, first in the semester. Um, that's $50 for the entire semester for you to learn the Algonquin language. Um, they start with the basics of grammar and how to form sentences, um, how to do your introduction, say where you're from. And so, so many of the students have gone on to use the education that they've learned to begin the beginning of their uh, presentations at libraries and universities. Um, I think we're all seeing that more and more that Native people are learning that as the very basis and then going on from there. Just as white society or the dominant society as the case might be, whichever way you want to describe it, has so much to learn from indigenous people, from minority people, from people who in essence are just as much Americans as all of us are. Is there an essence of what they can bring to the res? There are people in the listening audience who are talented, who will come and want to learn, but also want to share. What are the needs on the reservation and the needs of reservation life presently? Um, I would say not only for Shinnecock, but for every uh, federally recognized uh, nation in the United States is the um, enhancement of our sovereignty, of our self-governing uh, rights and our treaty rights to be respected. And so one thing that we're uh, <laughs> kind of experimenting with now and it's unfolding at this very moment uh, is the Shinnecock Monuments Project. And so if you're on the East End or maybe you've watched the daily show with Trevor Noah, you've seen a segment on our um, two monuments that are three stories tall with LCD screens. And this has been a project that was launched May 2019. And our whole purpose is to have economic development. And so uh, since that time, uh, the Department of Transportation and Andrew Cuomo have been um, having lawsuits against the Shinnecock Nation, the developers, our tribal leaders, and the investors to try to get the project stopped. And uh, this February the 28th, they actually threatened to demolish the, both both of the signs, uh, despite 
them being situated on our tribal uh, territory, our unceded lands that are still in our possession. And so it is a um, very uh, important topic. It's something that we need public support. Uh, if you're listening to this, you can contact your local um, representatives. You can contact uh, the governor's office in New York and demand that they stop this uh, unnecessary lawsuit and um, basically uh, economic oppression of the Shinnecock Nation, which has been going on from very first contact. Is there an impetus for Shinnecock natives to become involved deeply in politics, running for office, and so forth? Um, I, I really love uh, Deb Holland. She's in the Department of the Interior. I think that represents something that all Native people need to um, pursue because I think unless you have someone representing you and your ideals and things that you care about, um, people are still going to um, say that they're going to do something and then do something different. That's what we've been seeing for decades and decades. And so I hope that some of our tribal members run for um, Southampton Town Board and um, maybe become mayor or governor one day. That would be amazing. That would be mar really marvelous. I'm wondering, uh, there has been talk with the COVID virus and the pandemic that a number of uh, Midwestern and far Western Indian tribes have wanted to close off their properties. And that involves closing off a major road. Is that the kind of independence that the Shinnecock Nation wishes to be part and yet apart? Um, that's a, a, a subject that... Um, if you look at Google Maps, um, one thing I've noticed is that the Shinnecock Reservation is basically situated on a peninsula that you can entirely pass your entire life and never really know it's there. And so other um, nations in the United States, they actually have territory that uh, intersects with major highways. And um, if they shut down the roads, they would actually cause a major disruption to travel. And so for us on Shinnecock, um, there isn't a lot of reason for people to come on the reservation itself. So that's sort of something that we've been lucky with. And we've, we've not had a lot of uh, outsiders just wander onto the reservation um, with a threat of passing on COVID or causing that uh, worry. Privacy then part and parcel of the culture or simply the desire of any people to want to be left alone. Absolutely. Um, we were actually based um, much more um, concretely at uh, Shinnecock Canal and Good Ground and Hampton Bays. And so it wasn't until the 19th century that Southampton town um, kind of pushed us onto the reservation, um, hoping that it was sort of the um, badlands um, that we think of when we think of like the Trail of Tears in Oklahoma. They saw the uh, Shinnecock Neck as that area that Hopefully one day they won't want that anymore. Or it won't be too valuable, but we're still here today. And we'll be into the future. It's the proof of a culture that it doesn't die. It simply expands. I think you, in a sense, perhaps recently, have affected the mainstream society more than the mainstream society presently is impacting on you. Can you give us an idea of how you approach photography, Jeremy? your methodology? Uh, sure. Um, I would say no matter which portfolio I'm developing or working on or presenting, it always comes from a uh, well-researched or contextualized uh, source. 
And so it's very rare that I just go out into the world and kind of take candid photos or street photography. It actually starts at the point of uh, looking at text or looking at uh, research and then creating artwork from that. That way, when I present it later on, it'll always be um, available with a caption so that viewers don't have to come to it and try to interpret it. They can just um, see a story or see some sort of um, heritage accompanied with that image. How do you, in a sense, pose your characters? How do you, in a sense, promulgate the fact that they are being honestly represented and yet they're saying something that you want them to say? Uh, early on, I was using a lot of uh, candid um, individuals in the regalia, kind of cutting them out similar to paper collage and placing them on the same landscape. But in more recent times, I started to just shoot right in the studio or shoot on site and create compositions that way because it's much more convincing. You can actually um, pose people, have them um, do what exactly you imagine them doing, and that way you can control so many more elements. So that's that's what I'm starting to do now. Are there any shows prevalently being planned or in practice at the moment that my audience can take advantage of? They, I've seen your work. It is artistry. I'd love to see more people experience it. Oh, sure. Um, with COVID-19, so many um, opportunities and especially in-person showings have been canceled, but they can go on my website and um, either join the mailing list or they can uh, see a calendar of different events to check out. Would you uh, verbally give your website to the audience? Oh, sure. It's uh, www.jeremynative.com. Those people who are excited by experiencing something new like this, what would you say is the most often misunderstood attribute of the first timer who wants to really experience indigenous life, whether on the res at the end of the island or with the Nez Perce in Washington and Oregon. What are some of the inconsequentials that people miss? Uh, well, one of my projects actually um, directly tries to answer that question of what do we often miss? Um, thinking back to our discussion about powwows, um, people usually do just come in, they keep to themselves and watch things from a distance. And so back in 2015, I actually formalized some of the portrait work that I do. I um, began a series of 100 uh, interviews and traditional portraits and combined them in a book because so often people come to powwows, um, they rarely interact with native people. Sometimes when you're wandering around, you see people offering $5 to take a photo with a native dancer, but they don't actually spend time getting to know these people who make these events possible. And so in that uh, Behind the Dance book, actually created something that people can open up, they can learn about different nations in this area. And I really love it too on a personal level because um, in the Northeast, we all kind of look like relatives. We don't fit that stereotype of what natives look like in Hollywood. And so it, it is kind of a self uh, representation as well. I've often worked on personal exchanges involving academic levels of various ages, high school seniors, college graduate students, and so forth. Is there any effort being made for pupil exchanges so that the young can get to know the young? 
Um, there have been some interesting um, programs, usually between different nations. Um, I personally attended a program uh, called the WINS program in Washington, D.C. that brought together uh, nationwide different Native uh, people for the month. And we just uh, hung out, we exchanged, we learned our similarities and differences along with attended different classes and internships. And so I, I really love that. And there's different versions of that program that still exist. There's also something called Unity, where um, as a group of uh, teenagers, you can actually visit other reservations and um, network or exchange or learn about um, their issues and their triumphs. And so there are different uh, programs like that, um, which I think are really beneficial. It would seem that uh, indigenous, African-American, Hispanic, if minorities band politically, socially, emotionally, they can become a force, a force to be reckoned with, a force that one can't ignore. Is there an effort on the reg, on the reservation to ameliorate the distinctions and differences between racial groups, Blacks, Indians, Hispanic, and so forth? Um, I'm a believer that we all should uh, celebrate our differences, but at the same time, uh, support each other's um, issues and initiatives. And so here on the Shinnecock Reservation, we have many uh, mixed-raced people. And so I think naturally, um, because of this mixing, we have a lot of uh, cultural um, exchanges happening. And so we do have people who are different passing um, visually races, even though they are primarily Shinnecock and grew up on the reservation. So that's definitely instilled in them. But I think that depending on maybe what you're passing as, you might just naturally join different groups or find similarities that way. And so definitely here at Shinnecock, we've supported different um, Black and Hispanic and other um, racial initiatives just to be in solidarity and um, vice versa. They've also helped us out with our different programs too. Can you take a few minutes and discuss some of your efforts and grant work? The On the Site grant uh, is rather interesting and deserves a discussion. Oh, sure. Uh, back in 2016, I was uh, very fortunate to receive the Dream Starter grant from a nonprofit called uh, Running Strong for American Indian Youth, which was uh, co-founded by Oglala Lakota tribal member Billy Mills. Uh, Billy Mills is a uh, really... Um, he's a celebrity in Indian country. He won the 1964 uh, Olympics in Japan for the 10,000 meter race. And since that point, he just has been traveling the country, uh, supporting different initiatives for Native youth. And in 2016, he awarded me uh, a $10,000 grant to pursue a, pro a project called On This Site, Indigenous Long Island. And so if you go to my website and go to the project page, what you'll see is a map of Long Island, along with the traditional territories of different indigenous groups, some of the site-specific histories, and sort of in that same Wikipedia-style format, a knowledge base of different um, material culture, different biographies, uh, different topics of research. And in essence, the project is uh, pursued because we have so many invisible landscapes that are part of our culture but people pass them every day and don't realize it. Or because we're on the East End, so much of the landscape is just um, freely developed to the highest bidder. And sometimes those landscapes are our sacred uh, ceremonial sites. 
those sacred burial sites are places where uh, we once occupied and still are. And so this map is a uh, practical way of uh, having a sense of where we are, where we came from, and where we still um, are going to be in the future. Is there a serious effort to, in some way, inculcate the majority culture's influence on the res taking territory? Land is very valuable out there. And how do you deal with that? Oh, yeah. Out here, um, a single lot could be anywhere from $500,000 to $1.5 million just for a half acre or an acre of land without any housing development on it. And so um, one of our major historical moments and celebrations was the 2010 federal recognition for the Shinnecock Nation. At that point, we joined over 570 other uh, nations who gained that title. And we didn't get that title just to um, kind of be recognized in the eyes of the, of the United States. We actually pursued that over 30 years to regain our uh, unceded land, our stolen land of the Shinnecock Hills. And so one thing that's so special about my project is that you can look at the map, you can see exactly where that land is. And I think that people who live on that land can actually see um, how they are implicated in this whole history of colonization, which uh, really never ended. It's still ongoing and still unrectified. I'm glad you used the phrase, our stolen lands. Do you ever feel any measure of optimism that some sort of compensation can take place? I know, for instance, the Oglala Sioux will not accept any money for the Black Hills. Would you accept anything for other than the land itself? I think um, there's so much to be said about the land itself. Um, if you look at the uh, geography of Long Island and the hills and the elevation um, and contextualize that with uh, global warming, one of my personal fears is the um, sea rising. And so Shinnecock Neck is situated pretty much at sea level. But if one day we get the Shinnecock Hills, that could alleviate some of our loss, some of our um, loss of territory and cultural heritage. And if you look at other examples, like Oklahoma is a great example of land being returned to uh, Native people on massive scale. And so I think that with the Biden administration, perhaps that is something that he can kind of check off the list of doing the right thing and returning that land, no matter how um, disruptive in quotes it might be. This has been marvelous, Jeremy. We've come to the end of what I hope will be a prelude to another talk down the road. At your discretion, of course, our guest has been uh, Mr. Jeremy Dennis, an artist, a procurer of truth, a person who has a lot to say. Take advantage. The program is seldom said. My name is Robert. Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit wcwp.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.